Ukraine Calling. Hello and welcome to Ukraine Calling, the English language podcast from Hromatsky Radio in Kiev. I'm Andrei Kulikov. I'm talking today to Mark Stephen Ellis. He is an international criminal law expert and the executive director of the International Bar Association. Mark Ellis is also the current chair of the UN-created advisory panel on matters relating to Defense Council or the Mechanism for International Criminal Tribunals. I asked uh, Mr. Ellis why he keeps coming to Ukraine while many people stay away because of the Russian invasion. First of all, it's important to, to be here and to show uh, commitment uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and as I'm representing the largest association of lawyers in the world, I think it's even more of a reason to be here because the issues that are affecting Ukraine deals with dramatic, horrendous violations of international law. And so it's appropriate that I'm here not only in support of Ukraine, but also to see what are some of the assistance that we can provide Ukraine, which I've been doing for the IBA since uh, since the beginning of the war. And the IBA stands for? The International Bar Association, again, the largest association of lawyers uh, in the world. When we speak of war crimes and crimes against humanity, how verified those allegations are and how provable they are? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that the evidence is absolutely overwhelming uh, to show that both war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, have and are continuing to be committed here in Ukraine uh, by Russia uh, and its military. Uh, war crimes, which is internationally humanitarian law, as we know, uh, is a structure of laws that define, if you will, the rules that have to be followed in war. And that sounds a bit odd, of course, but that's exactly what international humanitarian law is. And the violations that have been committed here by Russia, again, are, are unquestionable and the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, crimes against humanity is a a widespread or systematic attack against a civilian population. Well, that happens. That's happening every day. It happened the other night when I was trying to sleep, uh, and uh, drones and uh, bombs were uh, uh, were coming on, uh, coming down on Ukraine and on Kiev. Uh, that is an indiscriminate uh, act uh, with the intention of causing damage to civilians. But they may say our drones and missiles were aimed at military targets, at uh, legitimate targets, and this was the Ukrainian air defense which brought the debris yeah. on uh, peaceful residents. Yes. And That's I, actually I, what they say. And, well, and I think that that is an important distinction uh, to make in law. Of course, uh, conducting, uh, involving, uh, being involved in a war, uh, you're permitted to focus on military targets. That's what war is about. But international law is absolutely uh, clear, uh, uh, without question, uh, unambiguous, that you cannot target civilians in a war. 
uh, and that is exactly what Russia has been doing, and that's where I feel the evidence is 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 a bit overwhelming. I think that the International Criminal Court, which we know has already uh, set out an arrest warrant for Mr. Putin uh, for uh, war crimes, but specifically uh, dealing with the deportation of children, that that indictment will undoubtedly be amended uh, to include other crimes that are being committed. And so I suspect that that will be forthcoming. And that amendment on the indictment against Mr. Putin should be forthcoming because, again, the evidence is there. What is needed uh, to add new accusations or what's the word? What is what is needed to uh, expand the range of uh, what Mr. Putin can be prosecuted for? Well, again... Um, If you look at the International Criminal Court's statute and you look at the crimes that are under uh, the court's remit, uh, war crimes, as I mentioned, with a, a special focus on uh, attacks against civilians, for me, is the main, should be the main focus for uh for any additional indictment against Mr. Putin for war crimes. Again, this indiscriminate uh, attack against civilians without distinction between, as you indicated earlier, military targets and civilian targets. Uh, I think that's the, 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 uh, a, a clear area where evidence uh, indicates. Second, There are actually targeted, evidence of targeted approaches uh, from Russia, for instance, towards infrastructure here in Ukraine, or even hospitals, which we have seen. And that too, that's not an indiscriminate attack. That is a discriminate, I mean, that is a targeted attack against a non-military uh, uh, area, non-military objects. Uh, and the, those attacks would also be a violation of international humanitarian law and a war crime. You could then go to crimes against humanity, which I suspect you may very well have an indictment against the more general policy and actions from Russia as to a widespread and or systematic attack against civilian populations, and that's happening every day. The last area that comes under the remit of the court is genocide, and that will be interesting. Genocide is having showing specific intent to destroy in whole or part a group based on ethnicity or race, nationality, uh, religion, and I personally think that there is evidence of that intent, specific intent, uh, from Russia. But that crime is, 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 has challenges to, to bring and to prove, and so the prosecutor will look very carefully uh, before undertaking that new indictment, an amended indictment on genocide. But I think it should be looked at. What about the crime of aggression? The crime of aggression in regards to the International Criminal Court is a, a, 
a relatively new crime that's been uh, embedded uh, in the Rome Statute, but it has limitations, uh, procedural, structural limitations. And so for the crime of aggression, unlike the other crimes, for the crimes of aggression, uh, the, the state and the individuals within that state, that state must be a state party to the Rome Statute. So specifically, the state has to be a member, if you will, of a court. And second, uh, you, you have to be a member and you have to accept or ratify this specific crime of aggression. Well, Ro Russia, neither of those within that criteria is met by Russia. And that means that the ICC does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression uh, committed by the leadership in Russia uh, here in Ukraine. And that's why so much emphasis is being placed on finding another legal mechanism to focus on the crime of aggression. But I, I should, I want to reemphasize the remarkable, uh, I, I think, achievement and in development of law when the prosecutor, the ICC, brought this indictment, this in, uh, arrest warrant against Mr. Putin, a sitting head of state. That's a, and particularly a head of state against, uh, in a state that is powerful as Russia. That is a dramatic step in international law. Uh, and I think we should take pause to understand how important that is. And as I say, I believe there will be amendments to that indictment, arrest warrant, to include other other alleged crimes. It is very important and uh, indicative, and uh, yes, of course, it has to be analyzed. But from the point of view of a lay person, I would challenge this by saying, so what? Mm -hmm. There is a warrant. Russia is never going to admit it or accept it. What are the mechanisms to implement the decision? Yeah. It's a It's a very good question. I I tend to look at this as a, a two sides of, of a coin. The first side of the coin has to be the legal process of bringing in the indictment, showing there's evidence against an individual who have committed these crimes. So that has now happened. The second side of the coin is the apprehension, apprehending the individual who have been accused. Both of those are exceedingly important, but one is much more difficult than the other. Apprehending a suspect, an indicted criminal, which Mr. Putin is now, uh, that's who he is, uh, is, is difficult. And it will not be, he will not be apprehended overnight. He will not be apprehended in, in the near future. But I always say that international law, particularly international criminal law, plays the long game. So you can look back at history and see other heads of states, whether it's Al-Bashir from Sudan, Charles Taylor, uh, Milosevic, a number of others who were indicted by international courts and eventually found themselves out of favor uh, with the very country uh, that the individual uh, oversaw. Uh, and this, I believe, will happen. 
and we just have to be patient. But I don't want anyone to be less enthusiastic about the dramatic steps taken by the court simply because we recognize the difficulties in apprehending Mr. Putin. I believe he will be apprehended in the future, and we just have to be patient about that. There's one possibility that not many people mention, but Mr. Putin may die of natural causes before he is apprehended. What do we do then? He could, um, and of course we have some experience on that with uh, Slobodan Milosevic, who, who died He was apprehended, of course, he was in The Hague, but he died before a verdict. And uh, that that can ring shallow to the victims of his crimes, but that's part of the risk we take. And so, yes, uh, Mr. Putin could die before he gets to The Hague. But uh, again, the steps that have been taken is uh, really unprecedented, and I think it's such an important step for the international community. And remember... The court doesn't have a police force. It doesn't have a military. It relies on the international community uh, to implement and to support uh, the decisions of the court. And that all comes down to political will. Uh, international criminal law, for, in my opinion, only works when there's political will. So we have to keep building this political will To, to say we now have an in, we now have a, a, an indicted uh, war criminal, uh, an arrest warrant out for this individual, Mr. Putin, from the permanent international court. It is exceedingly important that the international community recognizes that and does everything it can to ensure that Mr. Putin is eventually brought to The Hague, because that says everything about the international law and about the principles of accountability. One of the things that seems to distinguish the current Ukrainian situation from many other conflicts is the scale of deportation of civilians, including the deportation of children. And is there a special provision for prosecuting for this crime, if this is a crime by international standards? and uh, how this can be done. Well, Because, uh, for instance, there were cases of uh, illegal adoptions, even uh, like uh, illeg illegal adoptions of uh, children from Guatemala in the U.S. or, uh, any, or in Argentina when uh, kids were adopted within the country. But there is, for the first time, we say that there is a massive policy policy of taking lots of children from one country to another. And by the way, some people say that this is uh, maybe a collateral proof of genocide because the identity mm -hmm. of those children is being changed. So first, in a short answer, yes, the uh, uh, transferring children from uh, from an occupied territory into another territory or somehow uh, uh, in a long-term uh, program, which Russia has now undertaken, to take those children and see that as a permanent transfer. Uh, under international law, it's possible to 
uh, and seem and it's reasonable to protect children and to even transfer them out of a war zone uh, by the occupying force. But that is a short-term uh, requirement. That's not the policy we're seeing undertaken by Russia. As you say, it's a long-term, uh, structured, systematic uh, policy of taking children away from Ukraine, away from their families, away from their parents, relatives, um, and indoctrinating them uh, back in territory controlled by Russia. That is a war crime. Uh, uh, that is um, uh, uh, also would be consistent for a, a crime against humanity. Uh, and as you've alluded to, um, it could clearly uh, be uh, a genocidal uh, act uh, because it, it's the genocide convention specifically mentions this uh, this type of of, of policy. Uh, so it gets back to my point earlier about whether or not when this uh, uh, when this indictment against Mr. Putin is amended and it, it will be I think it will it will be changed it will be added uh, whether or not they the prosecutor feels that there's sufficient evidence to expand uh, the uh, the charges against Mr. Putin for this specific act of the deportation uh, and I, th I think there's a likelihood that you'll see that yes by its nature the International Bar Association includes people from different countries and what are the major differences if there are among your members in treating the situation and the war in ukraine yeah. another good question i i tested that um, I, I i tested that uh question that idea um several months ago when i presented to the International Bar Association's Council, which represents nearly 200 bar associations and lawyers throughout the world. So essentially most every country is represented. Uh, and the resolution was to uh, not only condemn the war, that was fairly easy, but more difficult was to call for the creation of an international tribunal uh, to pursue justice against the leaders of Russia. I must admit, as I pursued this resolution, it's like you're dealing with the many United Nations in the Council, IBA Council. So I wasn't quite certain w where the votes would be. I was confident I would win, uh, that we would, we would get the resolution, but I wasn't certain. It was unanimous. The unanimous vote by this very diverse council was for me extraordinary, and it gave me hope uh, that uh, it, within the legal community there is an understanding uh, that uh, these are uh, uh, these are egregious violations that have been committed by Russia and its leadership, and those that are in control, those who set the policy, plan the policy, prepare the policies of these crimes need to be brought to justice, and that includes Mr. Putin. And so I was very pleased that the IBA uh, 
stood out and, and made that commitment. You mentioned uh, bringing to accountability not only Mr. Putin, but the leaders of Russia, as you put it. And many people here are just thinking about Putin. Mm-hmm. And uh, who else should go on the tribunal? Not uh, probably by names, but by their positions or by what they have done. Yeah, I, um, when you when you look at when you look at uh, these types of crimes, regardless. Of, You know, for instance, whether they're war crimes or um, you look at superiors, you look at people who are who have in that are in control of the of of the subordinates who are who are committing these crimes. And it's interesting to look back at the indictment from the International Criminal Court against Mr. Putin. The indictment was split. It, it had two counts. One was an indictment against Mr. Putin for his direct involvement in this plan of deporting uh, children. But the other one was indirect, and it was because he was in, had the authority over these individuals who were committing these crimes, and he did nothing to stop them nor punish those committing those crimes. It was under the concept of command responsibility. Uh, and so you look at these crimes from either the individual who is actually committing the crime, could be a soldier, for instance, on ground, or it could be the military leader sitting in Moscow who's directing uh, these, uh, these acts And realize and knows, or should have known, that these crimes were being committed, and he did nothing to stop them. That individual can be can be brought to justice, can be uh, can be indicted for those crimes, as if he committed them himself. And so, I always look when when we look at the the higher up chain of command, look for those individuals that have the authority over their subordinates, whether it's political or military, that type of control is, is, is critical in making the determination that those individuals are responsible for, for the crimes. Ukraine calling. You're listening to Ukraine Calling, the English-language podcast from Hromatska Radio in Kiev. I'm Andrei Kulikov. I'm talking to Mark Ellis, who is the executive director of the International Bar Association. So far, we've been talking about crimes committed by Russian aggressors. But war is war. And is uh, Mr. Ellis as prepared to look at the other side of the coin? Because we're an international organization founded on uh, the UN Charter, principles of the UN Charter, and we support the idea of, of accountability and not impunity, we, of course, would speak out on, against any actions that would violate those principles, whether they're commit, those crimes are committed by Ukraine or by Russia. Uh, the very fact that the that Ukraine has accepted the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court over the current war means that the ICC, the prosecutor, can also pursue actions against individuals who have violated uh, these these laws and violated the 
the laws under the the, the crimes under the the, uh, the the Rome statute, and so Ukraine is not immune at all from being held accountable for crimes that could be committed by uh, by its soldiers. So that, that's the first point. But the second point is, I've been here as I said three times. I've had a series of meetings each time with government officials, non-government officials, in implementing the, the assistance that we're given, including with the Ministry of Defense. And I have to say I have been exceedingly impressed with their commitment uh, to ensuring that international law, particularly international humanitarian law, uh, is followed. Uh, and even to the point of uh, of, of educating, training uh, their military on international humanitarian law, on the rights of POWs, uh, even to the point of providing them uh, a, a, a a small pocket uh, book uh, that explains what their responsibility is. It's not to say that there will not be Ukrainian soldiers who will violate, uh, the, 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 for instance, the Geneva Conventions. Um, but I'm convinced that Ukraine will ensure that those individuals are brought to justice. And why, why, ha why does that have to happen? Because it's part of Ukraine's legacy. It's how they are going to be seen in the international community. A country that lives and abides by laws and abides by international law. I assure you that's not what's happening in Russia, which is why it needs to happen here in Ukraine. And finally, your third time during the uh, time that has elapsed since February 2022, what is changing, both in your uh, relations with the Ukrainian officialdom, what is changing before your eyes as compared to the previous two visits and the general atmosphere? But again, importantly, only it comes to my mind in the last turn, what is changing internationally about the attitude towards Ukraine? Those are, those are two important questions. Uh, the first, um, I, every time I come here, I am kind of a bit overwhelmed by the resolve of Ukrainians, um, not just government officials, but non-government officials, um, citizens, military, uh, in their resolve to not only bring victory to Ukraine, um, but also to build a society uh, that will be seen as having been worth the sacrifices that have been made, particularly by Ukrainians, but also by the international community that it's helped. And so each time I'm here, I get a better sense that that's the direction that the, that the country is going. But I also recognize that it is a, it is a difficult journey. Uh, it, it is... It is at times depressing. Uh, it's heartbreaking at times um, because this is a war that Ukrainians have to live each day. And the fact that 
two nights ago, as I said earlier, the bombs were coming down, drones were here. Well, that was one night for me. But it's, it's every night here and elsewhere in Ukraine. And that's an incredible, uh, for me, it's, it, it's just an, an incredible uh, uh, sense of the strength of, of Ukrainian people. On the international side, well, that's, that really is, to me, the, the most important component of this current conflict. It, I'm not saying anything that others are not talking about, but uh, will the international community, and when I say the international community, we have to recognize that the international community does not in any way mean every single state in the world. There are uh, quite a few countries that have really no interest in this war and certainly no interest in uh, condemning uh, uh, Mr. Putin. So that's a reality. But for the kind of consolidated group of countries who understand that this war is much more than a war against Ukraine itself. It's a war against the basic order of law, uh, principles, uh, human rights. Uh, and if we lose this, the consequences will be far, uh, not just in Ukraine, but I think worldwide. Uh, and so the question is, will the international community, as I've defined it, will they continue uh, to have the resolve to support Ukraine? Because that's essential. And will there be fatigue in the sense of countries who will say enough is enough? Will the U.S. elections next year go in a way that that would dramatically change uh, the position that the U.S. is now following in support of Ukraine. And it could very well change. And so there's lots at stake here uh, in, for the next year, year and a half. And part of what I believe my responsibility is, is to continue to speak as a lawyer, as an international lawyer, as what the consequences will be if we do not uh, successfully uh, counter uh, this uh, war uh, uh, started by Russia uh, and Mr. Putin particularly. You've been listening to Ukraine Calling, the English language podcast from Romatsky Radio in Kiev. I'm Andrei Kulikov, and my interlocutor today was Mark Ellis, an international criminal law expert and the executive director of the International Bar Association. Ukraine calling.